0: This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Amazon Studios, presenting Sound of Metal, now nominated for six Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Actor Riz Ahmed, Best Supporting Actor Paul Racy, Best Editing, Best Sound, and Best Original Screenplay, streaming on Prime Video. This episode is also sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Slalom from director Charlene Favier, and starring Noi Abida and Jeremy Renier. An official selection of the Cannes Film Festival and rendezvous with French cinema, Slalom is now playing in select theaters and virtual cinemas nationwide.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Kurt.
2: And I'm Devika Gidish.
1: We're the editors of Film Comment. For today's episode, we brought on two writers whose work we've long admired, but who, for whatever reason, have yet to appear on the podcast, A.S. Hamra and Blair McClendon.
2: Though we had planned for this chat to be a window into our recent home viewing, we kept returning to that age-old fountain of springtime small talk, the Academy Awards. We focused on a handful of notable nominees, Sound of Metal, Minadi, Judas and the Black Messiah, and Nomadland, among a few others.
1: We also touched on the massive Oscar marketing apparatus, 90s zine culture, professional Oscarologists, and much, much more. To top it off, we were graced with a brief visit from New York's finest. Fear not, everyone is safe. Though Margaret, if you're listening, please be advised.
2: And a special thank you to Kino Lorber and Amazon Studios for making this episode possible.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today we have two special guests. We're very excited to welcome them, I think, for the first time to the Film Comment Podcast. Blair, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah. Um, my name's Blair McClendon. I am an editor of uh, documentaries and fiction and sometimes other things. Uh, and also a writer, I guess, on film and politics and sometimes other things.
2: Blair, mention one movie you've edited.
3: Well, the, the pandemic interrupted the release schedule of everything else. So the last thing I cut that was in theaters was The Assistant.
2: It's been on my mind uh, with certain recent news articles <laughs> in uh, magazines like The Hollywood Reporter about certain producers. Anyway, we can talk about that.
1: And our other guest is?
4: I'm, uh, I'm A.S. Hamra. I'm the uh, film critic for The Baffler magazine. And I'm the author of the book *The Earth Dies Streaming*, which is published by N Plus One Books. I used to be the film critic at N Plus One, and I also used to be a film editor at one time. Oh, I was an assistant—I was the—I was an assistant editor for Raul Ruiz. What? Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
2: Okay, I did not know this, and this feels like a really like big <laughs> revelation.
4: <laughs> yeah, and then I then I worked on some documentaries after that, and then I then I got out of that. I worked for Raul Ruiz when he was making a film in New York uh, called The Golden Boat. his only American film. I was very young. I worked on the set all day and at night I did the dailies syncing. And then after it was shot, I was the assistant editor.
1: Wow, oh, cool. Well, we could take we could just turn this into editor talk. <laughs> I editor know. chat.
2: I um I don't want to take up too much time with this, but Scott, I'm curious, uh, what made you kind of Did you you intentionally switch from uh, working as an editor to a writer or did it just happen?
4: Um, Well, when I was working on that film, I was very, very young. I was a child, Devika.
1: This was before labor laws had changed.
4: It was was before the labor laws had changed. Yes. All all the editors were kids. (laughs) And... uh, I, I should have stayed in New York after I did that, but I moved back to Boston where I'd been living and I tried to get, I got a, I got a couple of jobs on documentaries there, but I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't the same as working for our Raul Ruiz. And, and, and also that film was produced by James Seamus too. So, you know, switching from them to what I had been doing in Boston, I didn't like, and I just went back to, I was writing a zine then. And um, I was working as a projectionist in a movie theater.
1: What was the zine called?
4: It was called Hermonaut.
2: Hermonaut, okay.
4: Yeah, it was about uh, pop culture and philosophy. I did it with a group of other people. We basically just wrote it one, you know, after we watched Beverly Hills 90210 on television once a week.
1: Was it, so Beverly Hills 90210 was the jumping off point, and then you would just sort of philosophize about what you'd just seen? <laughs>
4: Yes, that's exactly right. That's what we did. Yeah, and there there was a zine at that time called Bratmobile. Uh, they were a band also Riot Girl. Band. They they did a I think that was the name of their zine. I can't remember now exactly. It might be wrong. But they always had pictures of the Brady Bunch on the cover of their zine. And that bothered us because it wasn't contemporary at the time.
1: It was too retro.
4: It was too retro, yeah.
1: And so you you thought of uh Beverly Hills 90210 as the uh Contemporary Brady
4: Bunch. Well, we didn't. We didn't actually think about it really. <laughs> it, just, it just happened naturally, like uh, you know, like rain or something.
1: It was the nineties, man.
4: Yeah, that's right.
2: <laughs> it was rain and zines.
4: It that's was right. rain and zines. It 90s. was rain and zines exactly.
1: <laughs> um. So we wanted to start off with a little bit of chit chat about the oscar nominated films i know that you guys have both seen quite a few of them and scott i know you mentioned that you were working on a on your big oscar piece
2: well i'm curious before we delve into the films scott just so you've watched all six the films nominated for all 16 major categories is that correct
4: I, i watched 16 films that were nominated in the in the top eight i guess major categories yeah
2: OK, OK, OK. And how I'm just curious how that has been. Like, did you just kind of marathon all of those? I mean, what is the picture of contemporary American cinema that has emerged from that experience?
1: Well, we're going to find out in his piece So he can't. Really well, the, it. well,
4: no, I can. I, I, I'll tell you, I, I watched 14 of the films in 14 days in a row. And I, I had already seen I had already seen Nomadland and Hillbilly L.G. because I wrote a piece about them for Freeze magazine. So then I watched the other 14 like in two weeks straight. And, and, it, was de- it, was and uh, it was it was depressing gr- and it was it was grueling in a, in a way. And I feel that two of those films are two of the worst films released in the 21st century so far.
1: Did you rewatch Hellbilly Elegy? Did you feel like it merited?
4: No, I didn't. I didn't. Need, I didn't need to rewatch it. It was really burned into my brain.
1: I Is that one of the two worst? No. So let's flip it then and say, like, what what did you feel like was good? (laughs) (laughs)
4: And we'll get
2: to the we'll get to the worst ones like. Yeah,
4: let's let's not harp on that. But did any films
1: rise above the. Yeah,
4: I thought Minari was good. I thought the um, first half of the United States versus Billie Holiday was good. I thought that the second half of Promising Young Woman was good, even though everyone hated it i i enjoyed it i don't i guess not everyone hated it but it's you know lots of people did and um i also like the the first half of sound of metal
1: yeah well let's start with let's start uh blair what about you i know uh, you have you seen you probably haven't seen all 14 in a 14 day marathon
3: but no i i have not done that uh and i'm not sure i would do that i hope the baffler is paying depends on
2: how much how much you're paid yeah
3: (laughs) i don't know i'm still not sure i would do it um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no I uh which, which of them have I seen I saw Judas in the Black Messiah I've seen Promising Young Woman and Nomadland and probably some other ones if I remembered which ones were nominated but I'm already giving away the secret that I never remember what's up for the awards
2: <laughs> yeah well wow. maybe uh I know that we all have seen Sound of Metal and Scott like like the second half
4: no I like the first half
2: uh, oh you like the first sorry it's promising young woman is second half. Not a <laughs> I'm just getting all the halves, right? Um, so maybe we can start with that because Clint and I just watched it last night. Um, and I have to say, I was surprised by it. It's actually very different from what I thought. I just, the only thing I'd read about it was a Paul Racy interview in the New York Times, which was so touching. I mean, I don't know, maybe I was in a mood, but you know, he's been working, uh, sort of have, playing these bit parts um, on TV, series and movies for many years. He's 72, I believe. And he's been a theater actor uh, in at a deaf theater in LA. And so this is his breakout role. And he's he's nominated in the supporting actor category for Sound of Metal. And, you know, he just talked about how he never thought that you know, he would, there was still time left to become a star and how his wife runs a boutique casting agency in LA. And she told him, I'm not going to close this up until Paul, you become a star. I was, I mean, so that's the only thing I read about the movie and my heart was just melting. He's
1: nominated, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. He, he got nominated for, for best supporting actor. And somehow I went into it thinking it would be sort of one of those Oscar cliche movies about an artist who faces an obstacle and then overcomes it, but it's surprisingly more complex and like broad. I mean, it it kind of intertwines like disability, you know, thinking about disability with mental illness and uh, displacement. I don't know. I I was really struck by it, but I I want to know what Blair and Scott, what you guys uh, thought of it. Scott, maybe you want to start us off with your.
1: You're not interested in hearing what i thought about it
2: no just leave i i'm done
4: <laughs> well i um i am interested in films about the deaf and i just wrote a, i just did an interview with john john Vito for the baffler who made a film called her socialist smile which is about helen keller's radical politics um and uh during the pandemic i cracked a tooth which a lot of people have been doing i guess and it caused a ringing in my ear, and now I think that I, too, am going to join the ranks of the people who can't hear. So, um, uh, But I'm just paranoid, I'm sure. And uh, so, you know, sound in films is just an inherently interesting thing to m- make a movie about. And uh, I like the first half of it a lot. i would never seen a film that d- did the things that it, that it does with sound even though they're, you know, they're fairly literal things to do with someone who's going deaf. And, you know, I like the actors. um, And, uh, you know, the only thing that kind of threw me at the first half of the film was the lack of specificity of the locations. Because I I shot in Massachusetts, but I couldn't, I guess it was not supposed to be Massachusetts. I don't really know what was going on with that. But um,
1: somehow assumed it was like Wisconsin or something, I think,
4: you know, Missouri or something. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But um, I I just really thought they were the first half of the film was really great and really fascinating. I thought Paul Racy was excellent in it. And, you know, he he was he deserves an award. But then when the film moved to Belgium, I started to lose interest because it reveals that the the woman in the band is just a rich girl. You know, her, her father is Matthew Amalric, who just shows up like out of nowhere.
2: Did and not see that coming. See I mean,
4: he, yeah. And he, you know, he's great. He's great. He's great in every movie, but he just seemed like a special effect in this movie to me.
1: Yeah, because there's yeah. there aren't a lot of other recognizable stars or faces before. I mean,
2: I mean, Riz Ahmed, but not the right, Matthew right. Amalric is a different echelon and that was surprising, especially for a movie that feels so small and spare until that point. And then it's like this trump card. And uh, I saw this movie at Sundance called Mother Schmuckers. A f- like a, it's a French gross out comedy. It was crazy. And that also had a random random Matthew Amalric come, uh, cameo. And he's also just like this like dad of one of the estranged dad of one of the characters or something. And I was like, he's just popping up in these totally unexpected places.
4: That's how he was in grand Budapest hotel or whatever the title right title was. He just pops up randomly in that as a chef, as a funny chef.
1: And you have to wonder like how many people are
4: like, there he is. It's Matthew (laughs) Almark. Oh, what I was like pointing at him, like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme when I, when he, showed up
1: oh and and sound of metal yeah because it's also it there's the scene kind of the camera comes in through this dark hallway and it's like (laughs)
2: and you hear him first right on the intercom yeah
1: right yes um blair what did
3: you oh i was just gonna say that i had just rewatched. uh my sex life or how I got into an argument before I watched Sound of Metal. Ah. So I also just like, that stopped me dead when he showed up and it. uh, It was just a bit too much, but I I had a sort of a similar feeling that it was like, I don't know, I hate the phrase like took me out of it when talking about movies, but it definitely just like, you're right that it was, there's something lovely about how spare it was until that moment. And then once the reveal hits of Henrique, I was just like, oh, I guess we're doing like big, cool international film now. but I don't know yeah the the top of the beginning of it was really where I was most interested with all that sound stuff because. I just always wish people just did more with sound in the like movies that are intended to win awards and I just was in this panel yesterday with. Uh, sound mixer on it, and I was like deeply disturbed when he was talking about how well everybody in who's voting for the sound mixing categories is ultimately just like always watching screeners in their home setup, uh, which I hadn't really considered before about the fact that all of the sound awards are just people watching them on their TVs. Uh, but this one, I actually think, although I also watched it in my home, I was like, oh, at least like, there does seem to be a lot of thought and interesting things regardless of how literal they are. This gave them that canvas to do that.
2: also, I just wanna say like, we didn't, um, we didn't kind of encapsulate the plot you know, so Reza Ahmed plays this drummer in I guess a two person band with his girlfriend, and they 're screaming they 're like metal? a drone metal
1: it 's like a drone metal band
2: <laughs> okay Clint would know uh, the the <laughs> genre um and then basically he's uh you know suddenly one day like in just in the middle of something, he loses his he- hearing and there 's this ringing sound and that the film captures that really well, right that switch. Um, and then this was what surprised me is that obviously this is a very difficult thing for a musician to deal with. He's this, you know, he's on a tour with his girlfriend, they, they're, uh, just driving this RV throughout the country. And then you learn that he's also a recovering addict. Um, and so this really just messes up, you know, puts him in a precarious position there and he goes and lives in this, uh, sober living community for the deaf or people with hearing, Uh, difficulties and that's headed by the Paul Racy character and I have to say like one thing that surprised me about the movie and that I never thought about before because of my lack of exposure to uh, performances by you know or performance by the deaf community is uh, ASL as you know what it means to act while speaking in ASL and that's what was so uh, moving and I don't know, kind of just refreshing about Paul Racy's performance and the other people in that community. That conversation he has with Riz Ahmed's character when he's talking about how this community is fixing something in is about fixing, you know, your mind and not your hearing. And hearing is not something we think of as something to be fixed here. And the way he communicates that with ASL. Um, you know, just something you're, again, I'm not used to being spoken to in that way, you know, and kind of combining the subtitles with the, with the gestures and the emotions. It was just, that was quite incredible. And, it, and then like looking into Racy's uh, biography, that's why I was so struck. Like there's this whole community of actors, right? And this whole kind of um, craft to it that I just wasn't aware of.
1: There's that great scene where they're having dinner and it's all, uh, it's silent. You're sort of hearing it through their ears and then it cuts out and you sort of hear the, what's actually the sound and everybody's laughing and like banging the tables and there's all this noise and clatter and that sort of switch I thought was uh, was really well done.
4: The, the woman who played the other deaf teacher was very good, she, uh, a deaf actress called um, Lauren Ridloff.
1: The teacher thought, of the children's teacher,
4: yeah, I thought she was great in that,
1: yeah, she was good um i really I also really liked the first half, I think because it was just sort of drifting, and I wasn't really sure where it was going, and there was this sense that uh it it could have gone in, and you know you know i did, I wasn't sure what he was going to do, but I did feel like the second half he sort of it sort of locks into this like it was it was uh surprising to me that he chose spoiler alert what he chose to do um in a way and i was surprised because it seemed really like a choice on the filmmaker's part like it it, as opposed to a choice that came from the character at that point but um
4: didn't you want it to be more metal though
1: like i expected more metal well i I have a nine-month-old baby sleeping when i was watching it so i was Kind of the metal parts, I had to jump up and crank the volume down real low every time. So, uh, I was happy once they got out of the metal zone. But um, really,
4: I thought there was going to be a scene where he realizes he can never listen to you know war pigs again.
1: I thought it was weird. He was wearing a rudimentary peony t-shirt at one point. Yes, which is an interesting choice for a metal head, I think. But but he did not seem to care that much about music. I guess it seemed like that yeah. wasn't it was like the lifestyle was somehow more typical drummer right <laughs> but
2: well also that the relationship it seemed like that that's more important to him yeah. uh with his girlfriend than necessarily you know what they that the music kind of keeps them together is something they do together and i have to say i actually did like the latter half maybe even more because i think the first half felt a little more uh trite or just familiar you know to me um and then I think like the second half is where, you know, there's again, this moment where Paul Racy, the, the character tells him like, I don't know what situation you're in right now, but you look to me like an addict. Right. That was really interesting. Cause it made me think that there's something about the way in which he's reacting to this and the kind of transactions he's making and kind of the desperate way in which he's reacting to Wanting to get his girlfriend back, wanting to get his hearing back and refusing to accept where he is that relates to the, you know, um, to his problems or, or whatever his personality as an addict. And that really comes out in that second half where I think he's adjusting to the idea of giving something up, like adjusting to the idea that his life is different.
1: That's what I thought he'd been doing for the, in the first, I mean, or at least it's it seems to be happening to him, but, um, yeah, I'm open to the argument that the second half is, is okay too. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I, I will say I, I was pleasantly surprised. I expected, uh, a lot more sentiment, uh, sent, like something much more sentimental and much more, uh, tugging at the heartstrings. And this movie does that a little bit, but, um, uh, it, it's, it's it, in an interesting way. Or it does other things that I think are interesting,
3: like- yeah. I thought it was gonna play. More. I mean, especially when I heard that they were like ramping up for uh an Oscar campaign, I hadn't seen it yet when that sort of was apparent. And I just assumed, oh, then it's like, uh, what was the American remake of and was it called The Untouchables? The one with uh, it's Brian Cranston, right? And um, yeah, that yeah. you know, it's one of those like. There's a white guy and a younger black guy, and the white guy needs help, and so together we're going to learn about I don't know how to be good people or something. Um, <laughs> I
1: actually have no
3: idea what you're talking about. Yeah, so
4: there's a Brian <laughs> remake with Kevin.
2: I'm nodding, but I actually have no idea.
1: You you could be describing like so many Oscar movies that. Okay, but that's
4: <laughs> my point.
2: <laughs> is, it
3: like, is that like this movie? There's this French movie I think is I think it was called The Untouchables that did. Uh, just like massive numbers in France. So obviously we remade it. And it was like the exact same idea. It was like a young black man and an older white man who, you know, the older white man needs help, the young black man helps him, Um, And obviously the US was like, wow, yeah, we have the same thing, let's do that. Uh, And so they did that. And it's just like, you know, this very sentimental, like, can you imagine if a black person and a white person got along? Um, And so I sort of assumed, exactly. (laughs) I sort of assumed because they were like oh yeah it's about this artist and you know like you said and he has this obstacle I was like wow there's going to be so many sentimental moments in this movie and I just was like prepared to not want to engage with it at all um but I was that was that was the thing that shocked me most about it and I think why I got pulled along it's like I just I mean yeah there's some moments in there where they do it but I really expected it to just be sort of oozing throughout the whole film.
2: Can I switch? Uh, have a switch gears to a movie that actually I think is sentimental, but worked on me like a charm. Minari. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's switch gears. Um, That's it.
2: Again, a film that felt very. I mean, there's this template, especially in recent years. I feel of immigrant. You know, films about immigrants that are always about, or not always, but often tend to be about assimilation. The you know, an immigrant character or family struggling to assimilate, and it hits certain familiar beats about, um, you know, feeling like he, neither here nor there or encountering racism or, you know, all those kind of having an American dream that shapeshifts over the course of the narrative. And I do think the film fits that template, but it also took me by surprise with how spare and modest it was. Like, it didn't try to be more than what it was, which uh, felt quite specific to me. Like, it's really a story about a couple who are, who the their immigration and their displacement, you know, they're grappling with what that makes their marriage and what that makes of their relationship with their kids um, and their their grandma. And also it's really, it wasn't a movie really about assimilation, you know? Like I went into thinking that would be a big theme, but it's not, it's not a movie that like, is trying too hard to define its characters in relation to the white Americans around them. Uh, It felt very interior to the story of that family. So I was quite taken with that too. Um, Scott, you said that was one of your, the movies you liked too, right?
4: That was, I think that was the best one of those. And it really works because it's, you know, you, you, you kind of have to watch the whole film at once for it to work. You can't watch half of it one day and the other half the next day. It, it, it builds in a very powerful way to something that's really terrible. And, um, you know, the acting is so good in it. Everyone is so good in it that um, it really works. Uh, and, and I'm surprised it got nominated because it's just too subtle
2: so for, small for yeah
4: yeah yeah and yeah. uh yeah i really enjoyed it it, I, it was unpredictable you know it was you, you you did a lot of the kinds of movies you were describing when you started talking about it are movies that are very predictable they really follow a template a format and that um minari does not do that
2: and i think all the actors like you said are wonderful i do think stephen young and tan yeri is the actress the Korean actress who plays his wife I think I thought she was incredible and there are these moments uh, again where they I do think the central theme of the movie is their relationship and them grappling with what these like really monumental changes in their lives and the different visions that has revealed their different visions of the future that that move has revealed they're grappling with that and there's a very subtle moment where they come out of a doctor's appointment and there's or they're in the parking lot of like a mall or, or or store of some kind, and I think they reach an epiphany and they reach a realization about their relationship and they just kind of look at each other and look away. Ah, uh, it just, I mean, it really hit me so hard. Um, that, and of course that big scene, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, there's that big dramatic scene and they're all crying and it's kind of, it's such a shameless tug at your heart and it totally works. I mean, I just, I was destroyed by it. Um, and it's something they've been building up towards kind of falls apart. That's all I'll say.
3: But I feel like that's sort of the, the difference in it is that like, all of the really truly sentimental moments they actually built into the movie. Whereas I feel like, you know, you guys just have to assume that this Brian Cranston movie exists. Um, <laughs> but sure, it,
1: I have no doubt that it does.
3: <laughs> that like, I think whenever I think we saying, Oh, this movie is too sentimental. It's that they haven't really built it in. It's just like, they're getting, you know, it's like they're getting from that point to the next point. And each point is actually just like, dripping with that same sense and i don't know i mean i had a very similar like i just kept being shocked in this movie because i also was like okay so it's like the immigrant narrative about assimilation uh and it just wasn't really about that and it's like i feel like that's what if you told me there's an immigrant narrative and it's up for an oscar i would i would have flipped the priorities that this movie takes which is i would have assumed it's mostly about that and then all of the like actual family stuff is more or less subplot. And like, thankfully, Minari <laughs> mean, did not do that, and I don't know, I just feel like that's what's, I'm gonna be really mean to American cinema in a way that I shouldn't, but uh, shouldn't in terms of for my livelihood. But uh, <laughs> I just feel like it's so much like, if I was gonna paint with a broad stroke, it's just that people, a lot of the movies that I watch now here, Don't take
4: human relations very seriously. Well, yeah, that's that's very true. They don't even have humans in them a lot of times. Yeah, that's sort of what I mean. (laughs) Is like even if it's
3: like full of the most famous people whose faces you recognize, they've like reduced them to, I mean, nothing. Um
2: or like archetypes.
3: Yeah, but it's, I don't know, it's like they're not even willing to go all the way with archetypes, you know, it's just. Yeah, I would say plot reigns, except most of the plots are nonsensical. Um, They're just
1: avoiding saying anything at all for fear of like saying uh, something.
4: You know, <laughs> I think the UPS man is here, so you, I don't. Know, you have to. Well,
0: bring him on. on. <laughs> Tell him
4: to ju- jump in. <laughs> hold on. What Oscar
2: just... movies has he watched? Yeah. What is what, what?
0: You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Studios, presenting One Night in Miami. Director Regina King's film is a critical knockout, humanizing and celebrating the four icons and all they stood for, raves Entertainment Weekly. Now nominated for three Academy Awards, for Best Supporting Actor Leslie Odom Jr., Best Adapted Screenplay Kemp Powers, and Best Original Song Speak Now, Time Magazine declares Leslie Odom Jr. is astonishing. One Night in Miami is streaming on Prime Video. This episode is also sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Slalom from director Charlene Favier. In official selection of the Cannes Film Festival and Rendezvous with French Cinema, Slalom follows a teenage ski prodigy, played by Noya Bida in a breakthrough role, and her predatory instructor, played by the frequent Dardenne Brothers collaborator, Jeremy Renier. IndieWire says Slalom is shot with the kineticism of bodies in motion and the sensitivity of an early Celine Sciamma film. Slalom is now playing in select theaters and virtual cinemas nationwide. Learn more at kinomarquee.com.
2: I wonder, I will, I wonder if that's a useful transition to Judas and the Black Messiah.
3: I'm so ready to talk about this and get in
2: trouble. (coughs) (laughs) You wanna go for it? Sure.
3: Um, So Judas and the Black Messiah, um, more or less, uh, follows Bill O'Neill's, uh, who was an FBI informant's infiltration into the Chicago branch of the Black Panthers, which was led by Fred Hampton, and it sort of follows that path up through the assassination of Fred Hampton. Um, and I don't know, my, my reaction to this movie is that I feel like every, almost all praise and all condemnation for it my gut has been, oh well, you're wrong.
1: I haven't heard any condemnation. Oh, you gotta
3: hang out with but... way more leftists. <laughs> That's
1: probably true. <laughs> I don't hang out with anybody. So <laughs> I don't leave my apartment. But...
2: I have I have come across uh critiques as well. Some uh some more like some really good, you know. I, I I'm Blair, go on because yeah. I haven't really been able to actually, you know settle somewhere it's a movie that i responded to really well while still obviously having a caveat of okay, this is a hollywood movie but i don't yeah i don't know really what to make of the various responses so i'm i'm curious to hear what like what you mean when you said like you know you're like you're all wrong
3: (laughs) well okay so i'll say the, the the main way that i think the leftists are wrong um, and I'm sorry guys, I count myself among you and we're often right. But the the main way I think they're wrong is I've seen like a lot of this focus on why would you make a movie about the informant and not about Fred Hampton? Um, which to that, I would say is like, that's, it's obvious why you would make a movie about the informant and not Fred Hampton, which is, okay, I have also like done lots of research into Fred Hampton and I've got to say, just like true believers are not that interesting as characters. Um, What's like phenomenal about Daniel Kuehler's performance is like that you can you can see it in the documentary footage that Fred Hampton is magnetic. Like you see him talking and you get why an organization was built up around him because you'll follow him. Um, And Daniel Kuehler can do that very quickly on screen. But that is just like, that's not that interesting compared to (laughs) someone who uh, has been pulled into this thing much larger than them and is, on the surface at least, betraying his own.
2: I mean, a double agent is always fun to watch. I mean, that's kind of...
1: yeah. His story is, I mean, it's pretty interesting. The interview segment that the film opens with and then at the end you see the real interview and then, I mean... Yeah, Again, yeah. I'm spoiling. I'm constantly spoiling, then...
2: <laughs> and very tragic too. Yeah. I will say, I think.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. a complex character for sure.
3: And so I like. I don't know. I feel like that. Just like from a like writing perspective, I like. Of course, you would go with him. Um, I think it's like the tension of that movie. And I've like what I've also found very <laughs> intriguing about it is how open Shaka King has been in interviews about the tensions of making it.
2: Even the title. I mean, he openly has talked about his discomfort with the title. Yeah. Which is,
3: you know, unlike my side of the film world, you know, you sign up for a film and you sign a non-disparagement agreement. And I don't think Shaka has disparaged his own movie, uh, but he's just, he's talked about it in this way that I was really, really shocked by. Um, and that is, I think, ultimately the tension of it is just: if you're going to make a movie about a black socialist revolutionary at Warner Brothers, you're gonna run into some difficulties. Um, In fact, and the way they Warner
1: Brothers isn't known as the black socialist studio. <laughs> I always thought that was yeah, kind of the a thing. Uh, there's a... a couple of it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know. I like I. I very, I was very intrigued by that. They like sort of talk about how they tried to smuggle it in through this genre mode, which I think Chaka is great, but I don't think that's true. (laughs) I don't, I don't really think they did. uh, You know, I think he said it was like a a '70s crime thriller or something, or late '60s, I guess, crime thriller. Um, I don't think that's quite what it is. I mean, that like you can sort of see the tension too and how they're shooting it, which is there's that one shot uh, when. Bill is leaving the, uh, the like safe house and it's through the window and it holds on the thing and he like, you don't see him for a while. He goes off screen, comes back in and the car backs out. Um, and my first thought was that I was like, oh, that's a Steve McQueen shot. And it's Sean Bobby who shot is, who also shoots all of Steve McQueen's things. And I was like, oh, I guess that's why it's a Steve McQueen shot. Um, but even like in the technique of it, it's just like you watch the thing and the movie just feels like it is in tension with itself where it can't quite settle and I don't really mean this as a negative thing but it can't quite settle on like what mode it's in
1: do you feel like the uh the genre trappings that it aspires to neuter the po- neuter the politics or dampen them
3: i don't think it's a genre thing um you certainly could make you know a 60s style crime thriller that was you know had, had I was, some
1: yeah the the, st- the scene that that pops into my mind is the bar scene at the beginning when he has like this Humphrey Bogart hat mm-hmm. and I remember the lighting thinking back now the first thing that pops into my head is like the mask like the lighting is just so like intense and like <laughs> yeah
2: and the swishing coat like he has this long yeah, coat that's kind coat. Of, that's the first thing you see
1: and I almost expect it to be like Jim Carrey like <laughs> somebody stop me.
3: I think, like, the tension of it is less the, or, the, like, the politics being noted is less the genre thing than, like, what it takes to get a movie that will have that wide a release, which I...
2: And which will get an Oscar nomination. Exactly.
3: I mean, yeah. Like, I am not generally on the side of people who are, in fact, I'm against the side of people who are, like, you need to make sure to cast people who in some way look exactly like the person you're talking about. Cause I like find that sort of boring as a thought. But I do think in this instance, the like fundamental tension is that the Panthers were like teenagers and early twenties. And to me, like in terms of what you see in the politics on the screen, there is something that is dampened in that these are just like grown men going up against the FBI. Because, you know, when it's like, when you look at Bill O'Neill and you're like, oh, that's a kid that the FBI like wrangled into this. Right. It it just sort of raised the stakes on the screen. But if you had actually committed to that and you had asked yourself, okay, well, who are the 17 to 21 year old black stars that will, you know, get a budget for the movie and which will get an Oscar campaign? The answer is no one. which i think like to me it's like that's the that's what sort of makes it hard to go fully in one direction or the other it is just like the actual way you get a movie made that would have this level of distribution and like cultural discussion contradicts the thing
2: yeah i think that was one of the criticisms that i was most convinced by uh, the people you know talking about how the casting which, you know, casting older actors really does defang, you know, the what the movie is trying to do a little bit because, yeah, again, you know, the whole tragedy of William O'Neill is, like you said, just deepened by the fact that he was 17. No one knows what, no one knows, like most people don't know their politics at 17. And then you have the Black Panthers who are also like Fred Hampton is 19 and this is a man who knows his politics. You know, I mean, that's kind of the, what's so interesting like these young extremely idealistic people who just know what they're doing and then uh, young people who like like most of us don't know what they're doing and like what kind of happens when the powerful older people are able to like get into those spaces and play them against each other but I struggle with that criticism also because I think the best thing about the film are the performances and Daniel Kaliwa and Lakeith Stanfield who like I love like I just I will watch anything with him in it. I think he's incredible. He's like, in one sense, perfectly cast for this because he nails that shiftiness, you know, he nails that kind of um, uncertain, you know, being kind of a cipher and being kind of cryptic, but having a real sense of tragedy underneath that. Daniel Kaluuya is, like you said, magnetic. I mean, he just, that scene of him. Where he's like kind of bringing together the rainbow coalition and he's speaking speaking to the young patriots, I mean it really is stirring. You know, you you exactly get why why he was able to do that. And so when that all that is kind of destroyed by the FBI and and the police, it hits so much harder because these actors are able to their charisma is able to add something to these roles. But yeah, I mean like you said, it just feels like. I have to in my head be like separate that this is a movie, a (laughs) movie that works really well versus this is a movie that is doing something with the politics. It feels wrong to have to separate that, but that's a separation I feel like I have to make constantly like as a critic in this system, right? Um, I don't know, Scott, how?
4: Well, uh, I mean, I don't don't make that distinction uh, at all. By the way, when, we, when you heard my doorbell ring the second time, it was the cops. The, uh, the cops just came to my house looking for somebody named Margaret. Uh, I don't know why. They had the wrong Wait, Are you serious?
2: Yeah, right that's now? what that
4: was when the doorbell rang. And I put it on mute and I had to go talk to a cop while you were talking about this movie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Jesus. And then, I had okay. to go,
4: and then then he wouldn't leave. And I had to go talk to him out my window in the front of the building. Again, it's
1: like, are you recording the film comedy podcast in there? Right <laughs> now? Yeah.
4: Are you are you talking about the Black Panthers by any chance? We just did a quick checkup. Yeah. Uh
1: a r- random door knock. Yeah.
4: So that was strange. Um, so I missed part of what Blair said. But um my thought, you know, I I I did not like Daniel kaluuya in it very much. Mm. And and it wasn't because he didn't remind me of Fred Hampton. You know, I've seen Fred Hampton in various, you know the radical newsreels and the ABC television thing and the Varda film. It it wasn't because he didn't remind me of Fred Hampton, which he did not. It was because the film became for me a film about the two different styles of acting. One is this British style of acting that is very declamatory and playing to the back row and very sentimental. And then the kind of acting I prefer, which is what Lakeith Stanfield is doing, which is very subtle. It's about acting because he's a snitch so he's he's pretending he's something and he's not and um i just thought this battle of styles of acting was clearly won. I I, I I hesitate to characterize it as a battle of styles of acting but you know it becomes that if you watch it in a certain way and i thought stanfield was just so much better and i prefer that kind of acting and kalua just bored me by the end and it was got very sentimental and um you know, it, it doesn't, it, you know, he he is the black messiah of the of the title, but that wasn't interesting by the end of the film. And, and, and the real story is interesting. And I agree about their their ages, but, you know, once the film becomes something about acting, their ages aren't as important, you know? And um, I just didn't really buy Kahlua by the end of the film.
3: But do you think that's him? Because I, I think I know what you're talking about and I had like
4: a similar issue, but I actually sort of think that's like,
3: it's hard to say on this end whether that's how it was written or what's left out of it. but it's like I be this is again, this is me being incredibly annoying for just knowing a lot about Fred Hampton, but there was one thing that kept bothering me about it, and this is like sort of about winds up being about how they're portraying Fred Hampton, which is there's this thing hanging over them of that he might go back to prison, and we sort of know that it's trumped up, but they don't really include the like thing in it. And the thing that Hampton did that they were sending, considering sending him to jail was allegedly that he had stolen an ice cream truck and had given out ice cream to a bunch of kids on a hot day. And like, I remember when I was reading about Hampton, like, obviously there's lots of other things that I found admirable about him, but there was like something so lovely to me about that yes, he was like, we need a socialist revolution at the top of the pig government. And he was also like, it's a hot day and the kids need ice cream. And so he took the ice cream. And it was sort of, I don't know, to me, I guess, I think the thing that you're responding to in his performance, I like kept responding to and how the movie is structured, which is like, we keep coming, yeah, it's the Messiah thing. And we keep coming back to him as like a saint. And he just, he comes in and he says his thing and then the scene's out and I was like, and then maybe this is also the root of my, like, I wish he had been a kid is that I'm like, like Fred Hampton's the degree to which I find him interesting is the other part of it. of Like, like why didn't we see him go and steal the ice cream? Which I sort of wonder more, like, I guess on the political end of that is that people are kind of afraid to say, oh, he might've done the thing and still I don't think he should go to
2: prison. Like he might've stolen. <laughs> yeah,
3: um... I mean, I hope he did steal the ice cream. Oh
4: yeah. <laughs>
1: But it's sort of like by making, by fictionalizing this story, it kind of, I don't know, it makes it very palatable and it's, you don't really have to think very much about it at the end. It sort of
4: packages the, it up for it, you. The, the film is not presented as um, a history lesson, but more, more of a parable.
1: Right. Well, from the title.
4: I mean, yeah. I mean, even. I mean... Yeah. And that's, that makes it so it doesn't have to be about the real Fred Hampton, which seems to be evasive to me, you know?
3: I don't, I mean, I don't ever mind the like, it's not about the real thing, but I do mind that just like as a character, they just like, I mean, they made him perfect. <laughs> right, right. And like.
2: And so self-assured. I mean. So self-assured. Just, he comes on screen and he, it's just like says the thing and it feels scripted. I mean, it feels scripted, everything he says. Cause I mean, no one's, he, I mean, in, of course I've seen so many videos of Fred Hampton and he really was Self-assured, but I agree that there is an element in the film that kind of just takes out the spontaneity. That takes, you know, I, I, and I, I don't see that in the performance. I think the performance is kind of very faithfully performing what is maybe being given, what is written. Also, because you only see him in snippets because of the main character being Bill O'Neill, you kind of only see him in glimpses, and so the film is choosing what glimpses and how they're presented to you, you know? And I do think that it's maybe a little over-invested in drawing out the contrast between the two characters uh, in a really kind of clean way that, you know, I didn't think of this before, I'm just thinking of this now responding to what you guys are saying, that there is a kind of very clear line drawn between the two and there's just something very like neat about yeah, I mean, it's just
1: it, it makes it easy to, it makes it digestible and palatable to a broader audience, which is part of the goal, right? But it also makes it easy to stop thinking about after you turn it off, after the credits roll.
3: To me, and this is me sort of going off what you said about the, they're drawn so neatly and contrastingly, is that it's like, oh man, if we're going to do like, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, like the most interesting part of, that story between Judas and Jesus is when Jesus is like, I know it's you and I'm going to let you do it. (laughs) Like, go on and do it, man. And like, obviously that's not what happened in this situation. But like that, I mean, there's a reason that like that moment has sparked so much literature and so many works of art since then is that it's like, oh, there is this brief moment in the New Testament where Judas and Jesus actually aren't different from each other and are going towards the same thing. And it's like, I I just wish that line had gotten messier especially considering i'm gonna ruin it Uh, towards the end when they dropped you know the interview and he's like i was in the revolution and it's like that's the moment that i'm like oh i wish that i'd washed over everything else which is oh yeah
1: you mean the bill o'neill interview yeah and he's like i was doing over there like what do you tell your kids right yeah Yeah. and he says and i
2: i read that whole transcript after watching the movie just because i was so fascinated and it's hard to say what he means and whether you know what he's kind of so it's very hard to pin that down but i was struck by the fact that he was you know he kind of felt that he was righteous in some more complicated way than like i don't know then i'm then they were doing violent things and that i don't know there was something where he felt like this was all part of the mess of the revolution and i was I feel like you he's know, just tonight, very confused
1: yeah. and like he feels like he both contributed to the Black Panthers during his time as an informant against the Black Panther. Like he like participated in various actions that they'd done. And well maybe he he's... he
4: wants it he wants it to be true that he he contributed to the revolution. He's a, he's a tragic figure, you know. And and the film the film kind of saves that for the very end, you know, because Hampton has to be the tragic figure through the whole running time of the film.
3: Yeah and this like I mean this gets at my like real actual big pet peeve is like I just feel like too much of stuff thinks that like contemporary cinema conceives of tragedy as the sad thing right because it's like Fred Hampton isn't a tragic figure like not in the way that he's drawn in this movie <laughs> like he's I mean he's only tragic in like the same way that like Achilles is but not in the way that like like
1: like, is Jesus tragic yeah exactly exactly again
3: to get to like the black messiah thing it's like (gasps) you know you have this guy who's saying I'm gonna die for the revolution (laughs) and the actual tragic character
1: and surprise
4: is not that guy (laughs) right because when you think about Jesus and Judas first of all Judas was not roped into it by something like the FBI but also
2: there he, was no also, FBI in those well, biblical times. Whatever the
4: Roman equivalent or that would have been. You know? But sometimes with Judas, you think sometimes, well, you know, he, he got sick of listening to Jesus talk. You know? <laughs> Jesus.
3: I mean, this man keeps saying the kingdom's going to come and it never does. Yeah.
4: <laughs> One thing about the film that we haven't talked about is the portrayal of J. Edgar Hoover, which, you know, adds to the store of terrible, weird presentations of J. Edgar Hoover in movies.
1: That is part of that is the weirdest part of the movie by far.
2: I've been watching the West Wing like pretty much every day for the last two, three months and just working my way through the seasons and then to you know to turn on this movie and it's like President Jed Bartlett is J. Edgar Hoover, but it's perfect. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it was it was perfectly seamless. But yeah, anyway, go ahead, Scott.
4: <laughs> I mean, I I didn't think it was necessary to have Hoover be a character in the film yeah. because the Jesse Plemons character uh, as the FBI agent, you know, was enough. Right. And, uh, you know, he he's a conflicted character. He's presented as a somewhat conflicted character in a way, but also as a ruthless character. Um, and for him to have to go meet Hoover just seemed extraneous to everything. And it seemed like a gimmick.
1: And also Hoover's like drooling and like sweaty and like yeah. emerging from a swamp. or so. He just is like <laughs> as evil as. You could a possibly, dripping evil. Like the makeup is like running. The trail of the
4: FBI in the United States versus Billy Holiday is even more extreme.
2: I would love to like maybe have a little brief discussion on Nomadland if okay. you're up for it. I just think like it's it's been an award sweeper, and there's been a lot of polarized reactions around it too. So I'm just curious what uh our guests today think Let's about talk it.
4: about. Let's talk about the hobo food box that Fox Searchlight sent to certain oh critics gosh, and I editors. I heard about that.
2: First of you all, know, we did not get this. Well, Just yeah, so you it, know. <laughs> sure. We're clearly not special.
4: You know, whatever you, whatever you think. I think, it's, I think it's good that Nomadland was made. I also think it's, you know, messed up. And, you know, if, if you compare it to something like Hillbilly Elegy, it seems pretty good. But the, the message the message of the film is that it's a choice to live a certain way, you know. But again, that doesn't concern me so much as the food box,
1: so much as the marketing campaign. The mar- yeah,
4: the marketing campaign. So if, if 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 a company does a marketing campaign like that, and then it's ridiculed widely, I, I feel the director and the star should comment on that, because the film is about precarity and how people have to do terrible jobs in order to live lives that are barely decent. And at the same time, Searchlight is sending cowgirl creamery cheese and organic figs and canisters of organic wine to editors.
1: To only some editors.
2: Can we just take a moment to talk about awards campaigns? Because it was about like maybe last year or the year before that. I had no idea. I mean, I knew they were expensive. I knew they were like a whole involved, you know, deal. But it was only a couple years ago that I heard a figure for one ad, like one Oscars ad by like one studio for one film uh, for some, you know, some kind of placement. And it blew my mind. Like a full page variety ad or something? Something like that. I don't remember the specifics, but you know, it was like, it would be one small part of one movie's months-long campaign and the money was just insane I mean it was you know it would be like a year of tuition at a fancy private school or something for that one ad and that really troubled me you know I just because the Oscars are a self-perpetuating system right they all of this money goes into buying awards which just kind of keeps this this train chugging I, I don't know there's I've always kind of I mean, I'm, and I think I probably speak for all of us here. Like, have not really felt invested in awards, also because I'm not American, and so like, there's something else about this. It's like the What about the international segment?
1: You don't like this not... <laughs> international <laughs> we, cinema? We you're not, the you you're not doesn't interest you?
2: are not interested. Yeah, I just watch that, Um, you know. But like when I growing up in India, there's always like you know, why don't they nominate more Indian films or why aren't more Indian films shortlist? And it's like, who fucking cares? Like this is like Bong Jun ho said, it is a local awards show. And so I don't know, just the it's inflated importance already bothers me, you know, and then but then hearing that number just made me kind of think like feel really nihilistic about it. Because it just feels wrong that so much money is poured into one awards show or, you know, something that feels at the end of the day, that only exists to keep this industry running. I mean, have you I seen don't know. the budget I...
1: for Hillbilly Elegy? Like, how does that?
4: <laughs> I mean,
2: <laughs> I know I, I feel like this is just a slippery slope and then it's like demotion well, movies exist. But I don't know. There's well, just something, you
4: know, awards, awards, not just the Academy Awards, but all awards in the motion picture industry. Are in fact the engine of that industry, just as much as box office. That's why Netflix and Amazon are, are desperate to win Academy Awards. Because if you win Academy Awards, you become a legitimate producer of, of films in this country. And um, that's why they spend so much money on this stuff. You know, Hillbilly Elegy costs $40 million to make because it's a Netflix film. If that had been not a Netflix film, it would have cost $12 billion to make even with Ron Howard making it, because they're just artificially pumping up the budgets of these things now because there's no residuals or anything with Netflix. And what Netflix wants and what Amazon wants is to be considered a legitimate part of the entertainment industry, specifically the film industry, and also the history of the film industry as they take over from the studios. So it's really important to them to win these awards as much as it is for them to make Adam Sandler films. And, you know, that's not that's only yet that that that's only increasing. The legitimating factor of the Oscars is only increasing every year. And now there's people, you know, the New York Times has an Oscarologist on staff uh, in Hollywood who just writes about award season stuff. And it's ridiculous. And um, I I wrote about an Oscarologist that I met when um, Moonlight came out, when Moonlight was in the New York Film Festival. I was I happened to be sitting next to a man who was an Oscarologist that just went off about how terrible Moonlight is and how it's not going to win any awards. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's holding back the industry. It's holding back black people. It's holding back gay people. He, this guy was just outraged by it. And he was a professional oscarologist for some website that has hundreds of thousands of people reading it. And, you know, this is, it's a, it's a joke, is the oscarologist
1: no. like the, per- the person who pr- makes predictions, like a meteorologist? He, 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 or like he,
4: a... He's, he is like a meteorologist in that he's mostly wrong, <laughs> but, but he's, also, uh, he's also someone who studies this, you know, like an archaeologist or something, you know? So he's both making predictions and studying the industry from the point I of mean, view it's almost of like who an... gets the awards.
1: Yeah. Like somebody working on like an investment portfolio or something.
4: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
3: And I um, just feel like if you're going to be an Oscarologist, you should be a labor reporter. Like, yeah, right. I don't know. Like on my side, it's like the Academy Awards matter because they mean your rate increases. Yes, like, a lot. It's <laughs> so it's like yeah, I think I don't know. I just the way it has is important outside of the industry is very shocking to me. Yeah, that's because that's like the most crazy thing, right? Yeah, like you know if it's like. I, I was talking to some people who are nominated for some stuff yesterday and it's like, well, like the rate just went up. <laughs> like, yeah, so right. that's it's, cool. sho-
1: it's shocking to you. Like the, pu- like the way that the public is like, following, Yeah.
3: You know, and it's, and like, it's like, I won, I won an award at Sundance several years ago and then people decided I was an editor. I mean, that's what it is. Like, it's a legitimating factor.
4: You know, 10, 10 years or more ago now, when I was the film critic for N plus one, my editor at the time, Keith Gessen recognized that this was a phenomenon that because I'm only interested in, you know, cinema, right. Uh, You know, it didn't occur to me that there's so many people that just want to read about Oscar stuff. So he made me write, he made me write my first Oscar column, you know, and, and, you know, so many more people read that than a lot of other stuff that I write, you know,
1: I think it's, it serves as like a shorthand for access to that, to, to cinema, like looking at the, you know, best picture, Less people can just be like, this is, It it also,
4: that's right. It's non-blockbuster cinema today a lot of the time. And it's also a shorthand for what's wrong with the movies. If you have to write about every Oscar film, you're you're really taking, you're kind of like taking the temperature of what's wrong with American filmmaking in Hollywood. You know, so that's more interesting than following these campaigns for uh, Oscars that they waste so much money on. But Hollywood wastes an enormous amount of money on everything.
2: Right. It's also like, Clint, what you're saying, they they are like, I would say, based on conversations with family, you know, they are for a lot of people, the arbiter of what's good in cinema, like the arbiter of taste. And it's a little, why it's, why it like feels a bit nihilistic is, you know, criticism is that, but there's (laughs) not like literally thousands, millions, billions, dollars, you know, but the awards are like, of movie's chances are so informed by how much money they have for a campaign and who's watching what kind of people are watching them of course it's not like criticism is um, completely insulated from all these things
1: the fi- the phrase uh, critic critic billy elegy just sort of floated through my
4: head <laughs> 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 I mean, they the everyone used to know about the oscars that they did not reflect what were the best films of the year no, nor did the nominations reflect who are the best actors and so on. People used to understand that, but I think I mean, there's less, less and less of understanding. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think Moonlight is a good movie, but I think there's something maybe like troubling when a good movie wins because yes. it's like legitimately- It makes it harder and... to get
3: out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know. I, have a, I had a similar response to like what you were saying earlier about like when people have these conversations about why isn't this kind of work being nominated more and more? And then like, you know, thousands of words are spilled about all the various problems.
4: And I'm like, well,
3: the actual answer is that they probably didn't negotiate enough money for the campaign when they sold the movie. Right. (laughs) Like, And it's, it's like, it's a dull answer because it implies something even more dull about the Oscars. I mean, obviously I think myself and all my friends should win Oscars so that we can have nice stuff. But outside of that, it's like, Sorry, you just sort of spent been willing to spend obscene amounts of money and send, you know, organic
4: figs to people. It's a marketing success. But I'm sure those figs were great. But I bet they were. (laughs) Even no matter how much money they spend on these campaigns, what the Oscars are um, is the industry trying to tell us something about themselves. Yeah. You know, so, so that's why certain kinds of films about people with disabilities. Um, other kinds of issues are nominated over and over again because Mm -hmm. Hollywood producers are trying to say, look, we are good people and we care about things that are important in people's lives. We're not just making the fast and the furious 10 or or, or whatever. We're doing a lot of good in the world by making these films. And we're going to show you that now as we do once a year. So you don't think poorly of us when you go to see, you know, a saw movie.
1: You think people are leaving saw movies and saying like, (laughs) <laughs> <Those> damn hollywood <laughs> producers have...
4: i don't think the audience is doing that but i think the media does that you know and there was you know when those movies were big there were a lot of you know op-eds and things about torture porn and i wrote one of those too for the la times called we love to torture
3: but i guess it's just to me it's like i'd rather watch fast and the furious 10 than like another movie about a british man getting us through world war ii
4: oh yeah like i find that more offensive the the uh, British men saving the world thing is a really strange thing that's getting bigger every year. Almost now, British men who save the world are playing Herman Mankiewicz <laughs> for some reason. Well, yeah, you can only save the world so many times. Then you have to okay. save cinema.
1: That's that. That's the boost you get when you get nominated for an Oscar, right? You get bumped up to American characters.
4: You get to play a screenwriter. I do. You want me to make a pick? What's going to win no, that no. picture? No, I really, I, I have no idea what's going to win.
1: But you know, if you do, you want to make a pick? I, I don't want make your to. pick. Pick I, away, pick
4: I away. I don't want to make a pick, but I'm just going to pick according to what is the worst movie.
3: Okay, okay. nominated,
4: <laughs> and say that the winner of the Oscar will be The Trial of the Chicago Set. I can't imagine okay. that happening.
2: I will give that award to Promising Young Woman. So that's. Okay. <laughs> Following the same logic.
3: (laughs) All right, well, we'll see. Uh, It's not gonna be Minari because they already did the thing where they give an award to somebody who's not white last year, so they can't do that twice. Which also probably means it won't be Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, they They have to course correct. So something that's not those.
2: I mean, Sorry. Mank honestly just feels like it might uh, since it's so oh, insidery. Oh yeah, it's a movie about
3: movies. Oh yeah. Yeah, I- exactly. It's
2: Mank.
1: <laughs> let's. I'm trying to think of a way to end on a uh, less
3: on a positive note. Yeah.
2: We started on a positive note, and I think that's that was our mistake. Yeah. <laughs> we ran out of the good things.
3: Okay. Well,
1: then let's end on a negative note.
2: <laughs>
4: oh, <let's-> <laughs> <laughs> we thought we saw a lot of good films recently that we did not have time to discuss because as usual, the Oscars pushed all the important things out of the way in our lives.
2: Oh no, we gave them too much, too many airwaves. Yeah. I have to say,
1: I was very excited to talk about some of these movies, but uh, we can talk about them some other time. Hopefully when we have you guys back on again. Well, thank you guys both so much for joining us and for talking us through the Oscars and the wealth of cinema that the Oscars are giving us this year, so.
2: No, but actually this was a really great discussion, really, thank you both. I mean. Yeah, very much. I well, think.
4: I, I'm really glad you guys had me on in case anything went south with those cops that came by, <laughs> it's been recorded.
2: Everything is recorded, yes. <laughs> we, we are your alibis, Scott, thank don't you, you worry.
1: I, I hope we can figure out a way. I wish you'd I wish you'd brought the phone with you at this now. At this yeah, moment.
3: the problem is you muted it, so actually
4: we wouldn't have any evidence. We just found he left. <laughs>
2: that is also true.
4: Yeah, I had to mute it because you know you were talking, and I didn't want that to. But then you know,
3: you can always tell me the police are here, and I'll
4: stop talking. Yeah, <laughs> good to know. Thank you. <laughs>
1: This episode of the Film Comment Podcast was sponsored by Kino Lorber and Amazon Studios. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Eingie. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.
0: This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Amazon Studios, presenting Sound of Metal, now nominated for six Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Actor Riz Ahmed, Best Supporting Actor Paul Racy, Best Editing, Best Sound, and Best Original Screenplay, streaming on Prime Video. This episode is also sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Slalom from director Charlene Favier, and starring Noi Abida and Jeremy Renier. An official selection of the Cannes Film Festival and Rendezvous with French Cinema, Slalom is now playing in select theaters and virtual cinemas nationwide.